Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Well, good morning and welcome to the weekly gathering of Christ Community Chapel. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so glad you're spending a little time this weekend with us. Uh, whether you're here in the West service or you're over in our East service or you're watching online, thanks for being with us. I'm really excited to continue our sermon series looking through the book of Galatians. Uh, really excited to continue to lean into the Christian message of grace what it, will, what it looks like to grab hold of that message and what it looks like to make sure it doesn't leak from us individually or as a church. But before we continue that, there are a couple things in, in the life of the church that I want to make sure you know about. The first is this. That's, we're calling it a family quest box. You can pick one of these up in the atrium or in the kids' ministry wing. It does cost $35, although... It contains two $20 gift cards to different uh, places in Northeast Ohio. So I need to talk to the staff member in charge of the budgeting. <laughs> so of course you know we're never looking to profit off of you. What we're hoping uh, is that this fall we can contribute to your family, you and your children, your nephews, nieces, grandkids, whatever your dynamic is, we can contribute to you guys doing three things this fall together. We want you to grow in your understanding of God's love together. So there's some things in here that will get you thinking and get you talking about God's love for you and for your family. We want you to build great memories together. A lot of what's in here is about you spending time together, about you laughing and having conversations that you'll remember. And then finally, we want you to explore Northeast Ohio. So we're going to get you out and moving and checking out some places maybe you have never been. So if that sounds good to you this fall, just carving off a little time to grow and build and explore together, you're going to want to pick one of these up. This is the first time we've ever done this, something we're really excited about. And uh, because the first time we've done it, though, we didn't, we didn't make a lot of them. So uh, they're available as long as they are. So if you're, if you're thinking you might want to do this, I encourage you to grab one today before they are gone. I uh, love being on a team with so many creative uh, people. And that, that's not just staff, that's volunteers. And, and that's a good segue into my next announcement, which is uh, with the Thursday night service launching, which, by the way, has been awesome. I met six or seven people just this past Thursday who have never been here on a weekend, can't come on the weekend or are coming Thursday. One of my favorites is three weeks ago, there was a gentleman in the service in a suit 
And I stopped to talk to him afterwards, and he told me he was a pastor from an area church. I said, well, what brought you to the Thursday night service? He said, I never just get to go to worship. So he said, I came here on Thursday to preach on Sunday. Isn't that cool? What a way to bless other churches and other ministries is to make sure that their pastors are getting a chance to worship uh, too. So super glad about the Thursday night service going really well, but it also is kind of stretching our volunteers, particularly in music and production, pretty thin. So I know that you come on a weekend and you see what we do and you think, wow, they don't need me. But if you are a musician or a singer, we do. We actually, we do. Especially if you play guitar or piano. Uh, if you play one of those instruments, I see some of you sheepishly looking around. I'm talking to you, okay? I need you to stop to the at the Next Steps area and just let them know, hey, here's my name, here's what I play, I'd love to get involved, and we'll tell you what that looks like. But again, in our mission to let more and more people hear about God's love, uh, come be part of that, come be part of that. Uh, we also need people in the production teams. Let me tell you this, I am, what my kids would say, technologically challenged, okay? Doesn't come easy to me. But I ran a camera for a service about six months ago. They had me ready five minutes before the service, a five minute tutorial, and I did not ruin it, okay? I don't know how many of the shots I took they used, but I did not ruin it. If I can do it, you can do it. So again, if you haven't found a place to serve yet, would love for you to check out music or production. Hey, if you have a Bible, would you take it out and open it to Galatians chapter two? Take out your phone, your tablet, whatever you're comfortable with. If you're watching online, open that web browser, get to Galatians chapter two. And if you're here and you didn't bring a Bible, maybe even don't know your way around the Bible, first let me say, I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, this service is as much for beginners as it is for anyone. So you are in absolutely the right place. One of the ways we want to help you is we make Bibles available to you in the pew in front of you uh, or uh, in the back of the room if you're over in our East service. And it's actually the same Bible that I preach from. That's intentional. So that for you, I can tell you that today's reading is on page 914. So all you have to do is be able to get to page 914. You can read along. By the way, by the way, if you don't have a Bible, we'll give you one. Just stop by the Next Steps area after service and tell them you need one. And you are always welcome at any event, Bible study, program, ministry that we do. We will not always remember to tell you the page number. Sometimes we'll forget. But I do want you to know that every Bible has a table of contents in the front. So all you have to do anytime you show up, if we forget to tell you the page number, is just use the table of contents to find it. You can navigate the Bible like a pro. Thanks for being here uh, this weekend. So as we look at the back half of Galatians 2, three points I'm going to use as an outline to guide our time together. Very simple, and they go like this. You can't save yourself, but you don't have to, so stop trying. You can't save yourself, but you don't have to, so stop trying. All right, let's start with the first one, you can't save yourself. There are two concepts in this passage that we're gonna have to pause for a second and make sure we understand, or this passage is not gonna make a lot of sense for us. So we're gonna have to slow down for a second and define a couple of things so that we can make our way forward. And those two concepts are justification and the law. Okay, until we know what Paul means when he says justification and the law, we're going to have a hard time understanding this passage. So let's define those. First, what is justification? 
Justification is, is something that sometimes gets mixed in with a lot of other things that are connected. So justification can sometimes get lumped in with apology or forgiveness or reconciliation, but it isn't actually any of those things. Let, let me give you an example. Uh, in previous services, I have said it this way. Let me give you a hypothetical example that of course would never happen. Let's say that I have a fight with my wife, Amy, and it's my fault. Now that joke won't work in this service because she's here. So let's say that we have a fight and it is my fault. There are a number of things that are gonna need to happen in order for Amy and I to be reconciled. I'm gonna have to stop making excuses, number one. right? I'm gonna have to stop explaining why it was really her fault or the thing she doesn't understand is. I'm gonna have to apologize, I'm gonna have to confess, I'm gonna have to acknowledge what I did that has broken our relationship. I'm gonna need to ask for forgiveness. She's gonna need to extend forgiveness. Those things are necessary or we will never reconcile. Each one of those things is absolutely vitally important. None of them though are justification. Justification is actually the end goal of our reconciliation. Here's what I mean. In, in, in seeking to work our way back through that fight, what I'm really wanting to get back to is that moment when I walk into the kitchen and she sees me and she smiles. That's justification. Justification is being in good standing with my wife. It's that when she looks at me, she no longer thinks of the stupid thing that I said or the stupid thing that I did. There's no more anger, there's no more uh, a coldness, but even more than that, there's the presence of warmth. She looks at me and she smiles. That's when I'm justified. So theologically, it is true that our relationship with God is broken. And it is true that's gonna require confession and apology and forgiveness. But none of those are justification. When Paul uses the word justification, he has in mind knowing that when God looks at us or when God thinks about us, of course, we're being metaphorical here, that when we cross the mind of God, he smiles. That's what it means to be justified. Paul will also talk about the law. What is the law? Well, and by that, he has in mind the Old Testament, the first act of the Bible. The Bible's a story in two acts. Act one, the Old Testament, God has a particular people, Israel, and he's doing special things in and through this people group, not just for their good, but for the good of the world. God is wanting the world to watch Israel and their relationship with God so that they might know who God is and how he loves them. And one of those special things is he gives them the law. If you've seen the movie, The Ten Commandments, you know that Charlton Heston goes up the mountain and he comes down with the tablets. That's the Ten Commandments, part of God's law. And the law was God telling Israel, this is how I want you to live. This is the way life should work. This is the life that will be good and will be pleasing to me. So the law is a special code, special instructions given to God's special people for a special purpose. Now, why am I telling you all this? Because what Paul is saying is that no one will be justified through obedience to the law. In other words, what he's saying is no one will make God smile through their moral and religious 
performance. No one can make God smile through their moral or religious performance. Not even, Paul says, those who were born Jews, part of Israel, obeying God's special commands for his special people. Not even that will make God smile. In other words, what he's saying is that no one makes God smile through moral performance or religious performance. If you had a great week, that won't make God smile. Being at church this morning won't make God smile. Praying, serving, giving, doing won't make God smile. Not even if you're one of God's special people following God's special rules. Now, why is that? Well, think about it this way. Go back to that purely hypothetical example where I've gotten in a fight with Amy and it's my fault. One way of dealing with that would be to walk into the kitchen where she is and to say, I'm not going to confess. I'm not going to acknowledge. I'm not going to seek forgiveness. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to just start doing the things a good husband does in order that she will realize just how wonderful I am. So I come in and I say, hey, I think I'll do the dishes. Hey, these counters are dirty. I think I'll wipe them. I think I'll sweep. I think I'll get dinner ready. I'll help the kids with their homework. And all in the hope that at some point, Amy will look at me and go, you know what, I was wrong about you. <laughs> but of course, that won't work, will it? Because that's nothing but moral sleight of hand. Don't look at what I did, look at what I'm doing. Paul will say in other parts of the Bible that the problem with this is that you and I are all lawbreakers. We have routinely ignored God. We have done things our way, not his way. We have done what seems best to us, not what he told us is best. And waking up one morning and saying, well, what if I started now really trying? What if I did it God's way starting now won't eradicate what we've gotten wrong in the past any more than doing the dishes will get you out of hot water with your wife. Paul is making the point that if not even a Jewish person following God's special rules can earn a smile from God, then what hope do any of us have? I want you to imagine for a second that you are standing in line at the day of judgment. Because the day of judgment includes anything, it will probably include standing in line. That's the worst. So you're standing in line, and if you're smart, you're working on what you're going to say when you get to the front of the line, and God says, why should I let you in to heaven? You're working on your answer. And if you're really smart, you're paying attention to what the people in front of you are saying so that you can curate your answer, right? So the guy, five people in front of you says, well, I was married for 40 years and I was faithful. And God says, that doesn't do it. And you're going, scratch that one off the list, right? Yeah, you're curating. But I want you to imagine that the person right in front of you steps up and they say, and God says, why should I let you into heaven? And they say, God, I was born one of your special people. And every day of my life, remember those rules that you gave Moses that you told us to live by? Every single day of my life, I worked really, really hard to keep every single one of them. And God says, that's not enough. What do you say next when it's your turn? You see, you have to understand that what he's telling us here is that there is no answer you can give that will produce a smile on the face of God. 
You cannot save yourself. And I know you're thinking, boy, I'm so glad I got up and came to church this morning for such an uplifting message. So let's, let's hurry to my second point. You cannot save yourself, but here's the second point. You don't have to. You don't have to. You see, it sounds like what Paul is saying is that why bother, right? Why bother? If, if, if there's literally nothing we can do that will make God smile, then what's the point? But he doesn't say that. He goes on to say this in verse 16. Look with me, Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified, again, you can think, will not make God smile by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So also we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith. Paul says it is possible to make God smile, but it is not through our doing. It is not through our morality or through our religion. It is through faith in Jesus. Now let me explain what I mean. This is the difference. You know this intrinsically. This is the difference between a bad apology and a good apology. Bad apologies never give up power. Have you noticed this? A person will say, I'm sorry, but, but what you have to understand is I'm having a hard week. I'm sorry, but when you do that, it just makes me crazy. I'm sorry, but I kind of feel like anyone in this situation would have, what are they saying? They're saying, they might even say, I'm sorry, I'll never do it again. What are they saying though? They're saying, I'm sorry, and here are the terms I'm giving you, whereby you will understand and forgive me. And the reason why you and I hate those apologies is because we say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm the one offended here. You shouldn't be telling me how we get back together. I should be telling you. A great apology says, listen, I blew it. What do you need from me for us to be okay again? Well, listen, if that's how we feel about apologies then why would we think that God is any different? That we can go to God and say, listen, God, I know our relationship is broken and I know it's my fault. I know I've done things my way. I know I've ignored you. I, I, know, I know that I've kind of been my own God. But listen, but listen, listen, this is what you don't understand. Or here's what I'm going to start trying. Or here's what I'm going to start doing. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. You have to go to God and say, God, listen, our relationship is broken because of me. What do you need? What do you want, God, from me in order for this to be put back together? And Paul says if we do that, what we'll find is that his answer to us is more wonderful than we could have ever imagined. That his answer to us won't be try harder, do more, work more. His answer to us will simply be this. Trust Jesus. Trust Jesus. So here's what the Bible tells us about the life of Jesus. The life of Jesus was perfectly righteous. In fact, Jesus was so perfect and so righteous that when he was baptized, the heavens opened and the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove and in God himself said about Jesus, this is my son with whom I am pleased. Another way of saying that would be, this guy makes me smile. Jesus always did the right thing. He always listened to God. He was always obedient. Jesus lives a life of perfect righteousness. He lives a life that makes God smile. 
But his life doesn't culminate in achievement or transcendence. His life culminates in a death on the cross because Jesus told us that he came not just to live righteously, but to live righteously in our place so that on the cross, God might take the sins of the church and put them onto Jesus and that Jesus might willingly bear those sins and come up under the anger and judgment of God until it was poured out and exhausted on him at his death. You see what the Bible tells us is at the cross, God is taking the sins of the church and putting them on Jesus so that he can take the righteous life of Jesus and put it on us, which sounds amazing and too good to be true, which is why God proved it three days later by raising Jesus from the dead. You see, the hope of Christianity is not that we pray more, sing more, do more, believe more, and are somehow able to climb a moral ladder and save ourselves. The hope of Christianity is that Jesus Christ has lived and died and risen from the dead, and because of him, when God looks at us, he doesn't see us, he sees Jesus. Christians are not people who try to save themselves. I want you to hear this because I gotta tell you, one of the hardest things about my job is that I use these words, Christian, Bible, church, God, and because I don't know your story, I don't know what you think of when you hear those words. I don't know the baggage that comes with them, the pain that comes with them. I mean, if we were at a coffee shop sitting down, I would ask you 20 questions before I said a single thing. Because I'd want to know, when, when I say this, what do you hear? When, when you think of this, what, what memories come? So I, unfortunately, there are too many of you and too little time and only one microphone. But let me offer you this. I don't know what you think of when you hear the word Christian, but I know what the Bible says. I don't know what your parents told you or the church you grew up in or your crazy aunt or uncle or your grandma. I don't know. But I know what the Bible says, and the Bible says that a Christian is someone who recognizes they could never save themselves, but they don't have to. Jesus Christ did it for them. In fact, the best metaphor I can think of is a Christian jumps out of an airplane with no parachute, just clinging to Jesus who has a parachute hurtling through life towards judgment, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, year by year, flying towards the judgment of God, believing that their hope is that Jesus will pull the parachute. That's why we sing all the songs we sing. It's why we say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. It's why we sing, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Christians are flinging themselves wholly on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So that on the day of judgment, what it means to be a Christian is that when you stand before God and God says, why should I let you into heaven, that you don't have an answer, you just look at Jesus. Because if he doesn't speak for you, you know you have no hope. It is believing in that moment that Jesus will say to God the Father, he, she trusted me. But it isn't just that God will say in that moment begrudgingly, well, fine then. <laughs> Darn it. It's that when Jesus says, she trusted me, it is believing that the God of the universe breaks out in a smile. 
because you are justified in Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. Is that what you are holding on to? It isn't just a grabbing of Jesus. It's an abandonment of anything else. It is holding on to Jesus alone as our hope of justification. And that's hard. That's hard. Which is why I'm going to press into it even more in my third point, which is to say you can't save yourself, but you don't have to. So stop trying. I don't know if you're familiar with the term whataboutism. I'm pretty sure it originated on Twitter. Whataboutism is when somebody makes an argument and you try to find one scenario or one situation where that argument doesn't apply and you say, what about this? And I want you to know that it didn't originate with Twitter because here it is in the book of Galatians because the very next thing Paul will turn to is people who say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, Paul. If you tell people that they are just justified by faith in Jesus, that they fly out of the airplane without the parachute of religion, without the parachute of morality, without their beads or their prayers or their directions or their paths or their pillars, if you tell people to jump out of the airplane holding on to Jesus only, then they will just do whatever they want. What is the incentive, Paul, to be moral? What is the incentive to be righteous? And I have to tell you, that's a different sermon. Because all I want you to see right now is that Paul says, what about it? This is his answer, Galatians 5, verse 20. Or I'm sorry, Galatians 2, verse 20. I believe this is one of your anchor verses if you're doing the scripture memory thing. It says this. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see what Paul's saying? He's saying, don't you understand? I've abandoned the hope. I've abandoned any hope in me. Of course I'm going to keep doing stupid stuff. That's why I needed Jesus in the first place. My hope is that Jesus lived the life I need. Jesus died the death I need. Jesus rose from the dead. My hope is not that between now and, and judgment, God sees a crescendo of morality that I'm trending up, that my arrow is pointed in the right direction. My hope is this, that Jesus Christ is my justification. Jesus lived in my place. Jesus died in my place. Jesus rose from my dead. I am confident that on the day of judgment, God will smile when he sees me and it has nothing to do with me. You, you have to hear this because I'm telling you, I don't know what kind of week you had. I don't know if you had a great week or a bad week, but I can tell you this, it doesn't change how God feels about you because of Jesus. God is not rising and falling with your weak. He's not rising and falling in his affections towards you because of your morality or your religion. In Jesus, God smiles when he sees you. No parachute other than Jesus. This is what the Bible means when it describes Christianity. 
And if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, this is the offer to you. You cannot save yourself. But you don't have to. So stop trying. But it isn't just a one-time thing. You have to hear this. It isn't just a one-time thing. It is a daily reality that when God looks at me, he smiles because of Jesus. Let me give you an example, unfortunately, that will drive this point home. One of the worst things about me is that I am a type A driven achiever. I feel good about myself when I win. And I feel bad about myself when I lose. I coach seventh grade football. No one cares about seventh grade football, except for me, deeply. <laughs> I mean, two weeks ago, we won 50 to nothing. I get home at 10 o'clock. I'm at the kitchen counter. My wife says, what are you doing? I said, I'm breaking down next week's film. She said, you're an idiot. And she's right. <laughs> it's just the way I'm wired. But at its worst, it's a destructive force in me as a father. Because I'm an achiever. I like to win. I like to achieve. I like to accomplish. More than maybe I like anything. But my kids are not that way. A, because they're kids. B, because they're not sociopaths. So I have a hard time when my kids compete in something or do something and they don't achieve at the level that I think they can, that I want for them because I think they're like me even though they're not. And what happens when they don't achieve, when I'm at my worst, is that I give off this aura of disappointment. Like I'll give you an example. Yesterday my son Graham played in a flag football game. And the whole way, I love football, the whole way to the game I'm giving him pointers. I mean, imagine getting to ride in the car with a coach. <laughs> and then we get to the game, and he doesn't do a single thing that I told him. And it was so bad that eventually the coach in the second half just sat him because he wasn't contributing. I don't blame him. He wasn't contributing. And, you know, listen, I'm telling myself in the stands, okay, after the game, don't, don't say anything, right? And I didn't. Don't say, just hug him, let him get his snack, drive him home, ask him if he had fun. I'm doing all of that. I'm not saying anything stupid. And then we get home and Graham's sitting at the kitchen island eating his snack and all of a sudden he starts crying. And I said, whoa, whoa, what's wrong? And he said, I know you're disappointed in me. And I felt like the worst person in the world. But my concern is that that's how many of us think that God feels towards us. And there are two ways we can deal with that. One is we can say, well, if that's how God feels, I'm just going to shrink away. So I don't have to feel the disappointment. Others of us will go in the backyard and start working on football for the next week. So that maybe he won't be disappointed in us next time. Can I tell you something? That is not how God feels about you because of Jesus. I don't care if you had a great game or a lousy one. I don't care if you've crushed it this week or the week has crushed you. I don't care if your last win was yesterday or you can't remember when. God smiles when he sees you because when he sees you, he sees Jesus.
You cannot save yourself, but you don't have to. So stop trying. Let me pray for us. Father God, do now in our presence through your Holy Spirit what my words cannot do. Even just telling that story about Graham, it's so heavy in the room because we all know what that feels like. And it's only you who can whisper to us the gospel truth that that is not how you feel about us because of Jesus. And whether we're hearing it for the first time or for the one millionth time, we need so desperately to hear it and believe it. Help us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.